What a wonderful day. Happy Resurrection Day. We rejoice. Please be seated, by the way. We rejoice because Christ is risen. Why do you seek the living among the dead? What a powerful question. We all seek for life. We all want to live. That's just a very desire of every human being. And here the angels are asking the disciples this question, why are you seeking the living among the dead? The living are only, in, the life life rather is only in Christ, and he's the only one that makes us live. On Friday, we had a wonderful time, uh, was here together for our Good Friday gathering, and and Joseph, Pastor Joseph Churn was with us, and he shared about the sufferings, not only of Christ, but the sufferings of the church, and how those sufferings are used by God so that we can learn to rejoice in the suffering. And uh, it was a timely message. It brought great joy and comfort to all of us who were there. And today I'm going to be looking instead at the theme of the resurrection. And in particular, we're going to be looking at chapters 25 and 26. So I'd like you to keep your Bibles open. No verses will appear on the screen. I'd like you to keep your Bibles open and just go back and forth because there are several verses that I want to read from these two chapters. And we're going to be looking at one verse right now together as we read the opening verse. And it's a question that Paul asks an audience that had gathered for a special occasion. So read with me Acts 26 and um, verse 8. Acts 26, verse 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And this is the question. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? Again, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead. Father, I pray that you would speak to us through this wonderful, wonderful word that you've inspired and that the resurrection of Christ would not simply be some um, idea of the past, some myth, but that it would be a reality, a truth that is etched in our hearts and that we would live in the light of this truth, that it would transform our walk our thoughts, our speech, and our deeds in every way possible. Be glorified today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thomas Jefferson served as the third president of the United States. He was responsible, the main architect of a document called the Declaration of Independence. You may have heard of it. It's one of the most valued documents of the United States. Americans today still refer to this Declaration of Independence. He was a great admirer of Jesus Christ. So what he did one day was very unusual. He put together a book. He opened the Bible on one hand, and he had just book with empty pages on the other, some glue, and a small knife, cut out all the verses where it spoke of God's, of the Lord's teaching, 
of the Lord's goodness, his compassion, his rebuke of the Pharisees, anything that he may have said, anything that he may have done, all the good that he did, cut it out, pasted, cut it out, pasted. He did that. And then by 1820, he had a book called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. What was missing in this book were the miracles of Jesus and especially the resurrection of Jesus. Every aspect of Christ's miraculous life, his deity was removed. For Thomas Jefferson, Jesus Christ was a good man, an outstanding man, a unique man that walked on the face of the earth, but he was not the son of God. He was not someone who came down from heaven, took our sins, went to the cross, became sin, became a curse, was buried, and then was resurrected on the third day. That was not the case. The resurrection has always been a controversy. For over 2,000 years, this truth, this doctrine has caused a lot of wars and has caused a lot of controversy and arguments. But the very doctrine of the resurrection is the doctrine on which Christianity stands. Without it, it falls. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then let us eat, let us drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, enjoy life. Take the Epicurean uh, perspective of life, which is live for pleasure, for pleasure alone. And many today have embraced that very lifestyle because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They believe in what the Lion King sang in that famous movie called The Lion King. It's the circle of life, you know, the whole circle of life. We die, we come back, we all come back somehow, we come back. The circle of life. The idea of reincarnation is more embraced than resurrection. Today I'm going to tell you about two individuals and their reaction to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have, in this chapter, appears a person, chapter 25, chapter 26, appears Festus. Festus, in AD 60, became governor of Caesarea. He replaced Felix, who was in and of himself a very shady character. And... um, As soon as he arrives, he's sent by Rome and arrives from Rome and lands on Caesarea because Caesarea is a port, a very famous port in the Mediterranean Sea. And as he arrives, something is brought to his attention. There is a man in prison and the Jews want him dead. So what did he do? Well, we don't know for sure, but they all hate him. They want him dead. So he says, okay, then I better go to Jerusalem, meet the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, it was the ruling uh, supreme court, if you would, of all the Jews, and made up of 70 uh, leaders, 70, they were Pharisees, Sadducees. These 70 leaders ruled with their verdicts, and the Jews respected them, all Jews, whether in Jerusalem, Judea, and the diaspora, anyone outside of Judea as well. So, made his way all the way there, met with them in they insisted that this man in prison, who called himself Paul, 
would be brought to Jerusalem and stand trial in Jerusalem. But he read between the lines and got some warnings that the reason why they wanted this is because they wanted to assassinate him. There was a plot. And so he says, listen, why don't we do this? Some of your leaders come with me, come down to Caesarea, and you can listen, and I will listen to him also as well. And that's what happens. Uh, It's all vague and very confusing for him because he's a pragmatist. He just wants peace because Rome demanded that there be peace in that area because it was a very unruly area. A.D. 60. Remember, that was 10 years before Rome came in and just destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and just brought terror, Roman terror, into the land because they were fed up with the Jews and their insurrection. And so this man just wanted peace and calm and just everything to go well. Tell these men to come with him, and so enough, sure enough, this is what happens. And uh, when they arrive, Luke tells us in verse 27 of chapter 25, keep your Bibles open, as I've said, um, that uh, Paul is brought into the picture, and Paul arrives, and the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. And I imagine here, here's Paul, right, with the chains around his wrists and um, a, just a, a, a cloth, maybe like a, a, a potato sack on his body. He's been in prison there for uh, nearly two years, and he's just waiting for, uh, for these men and when they surround him, they bring up charges, serious charges. And they accuse him. And the serious charges, if you look at verse 10, you'll get an idea of what they are. So he goes, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried, having not done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. So the first charge was he's done things against the Jews. So they ask, this is Festus' question, what things did he do? I mean, did he kill someone? No. Did he steal? No. Did he take somebody's wife? No. I mean, the the common crimes, right? I mean, what did this man, did he take someone's slave? Did he let slaves go free because that was a crime? No, no. Everything was no. So what did he do? Festus did not know what to do with a man that actually had not committed a crime and everybody wanted him tried. In fact, they wanted him dead. Now, please understand, Festus He's not a bad man. He simply wants things under control. He wants to rule in such a way that there's peace so that Rome will look at that area and say, Festus, you're doing a good job. So he just wanted some kind of a compromise. So finally, Festus doesn't know what to do. He goes, listen, why don't we do this, Paul? You go to Jerusalem. I'll send an escort. I'll make sure you get there alive and let them try you there. Because this is just beyond me. It has to do with your laws. It has to do with everything concerning uh, your people. And it's just beyond me. Go to Jerusalem. Well, that's like saying to any one of us, would you like to be tried in Afghanistan? Right? Who wants to go to Afghanistan and stand before a judge there? That's not going to happen. So Paul answers back, if therefore... That's in verse 11. If therefore I am in the wrong and I've committed something uh, deserving death, rather, I am not trying to avoid execution. He goes, 
I deserve punishment from this court if I've done something wrong. I am not trying to avoid execution. But if there is nothing to the accusations which these men are bringing against me from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, no one can hand me over to them. I'm not going to Jerusalem. And then these words changed his life. Listen to these words. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. That simply meant that he was not going to go to any other court but the highest court in the empire because any Roman citizen had the right to make that appeal. And if a Roman citizen felt that he wasn't getting a fair hearing, he could appeal to Caesar. But there was a catch. This was the caveat. You could not pull that back. And you had to be brought to Rome. Well, Festus doesn't know what to do because when you send someone to Rome, you have to write up the charges. What charges could he write? Well, he committed no crime. He killed no one. He didn't steal. He didn't take anyone's wife. He didn't set slaves free. He didn't go against Caesar. He, he's done nothing wrong. He was an upright citizen. So he says, look, we have to figure out what to do. Leave him in prison until I can write up some charges. Well, time passes, and finally, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice come to congratulate Festus on his new appointment as governor. Now, King Agrippa didn't have any authority, but he just, they just came to, you know, just to uh, congratulate them and this way get on his good side, basically. And when he arrives, um, he basically is told the story of Paul. Now, who's King Agrippa? Here it's King Agrippa is a man who descends from a lineage of very deranged kings. The first, King Herod the Great, the one who had all the children slaughtered in Bethlehem under the age of two when Jesus was born. Remember that guy? That's his great-grandfather. Then you have uh, King, uh, King, the, of, of, uh, King Herod Antipas. And he's the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. Remember that? When Salome, the daughter, danced, and he basically was so pleased with the dance, he goes, what do you want? I want the head of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was beheaded that very same day. That's the kind of king he was. And then finally you have King Agrippa I, his father. And King Agrippa I was the one who had the apostle John, uh, James rather, beheaded. And Peter also arrested. So... These were very deranged men. And King Agrippa II is now comes from this, second, this lineage and appears on the scene and he's curious. But he's different than his great-grandfather, his grand-uncle, and his father. He's curious. He wants to know because he was a learned young man, knew the Jewish law, and also was a friend and very loyal to Rome. And he's very uh, young and he's you know, he always traveled with his sister. And there he was asking about this Paul. He was curious. And so Festus states the case in Acts 25, verse 14. And while they were spending, he goes, while they were spending many days there, Festus presented the case to the king by saying, there is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. That's the previous governor. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him. 
asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I replied to them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any person before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. Verse 17, so after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered that that man be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they did not begin bringing any charges against him of crimes that I suspected. So he goes, they had no uh, charge, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about, one, their religion, and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these matters. Notice what he says, a dead man. That's what, that's what Jesus was for Festus. He was not alive. A dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted claims to be alive. And since I don't know how to investigate such matters, he's still in prison because I have to send him to Rome. He appealed to Caesar, and I don't know what to write. I can't say he claims Jesus to be alive. There's no such charge. Why? We have insurrectionists in, in our empire, but we have no one that speaks of resurrection. Insurrection, yes. <laughs> resurrection, no. We have no charge. And so Agrippa's intrigued with all of this, you know, and he's listening in. Now, Festus is just your common secular mind. Secular mind has no room for the truth of the resurrection. Secular mind has no truth for the gospel. Secular mind only makes room for what is material, what is visible, what can be touched, what it's empirical. Oh, yes, there is love. There are feelings. There are other aspects that cannot be measured empirically. But still, the secular mind only is open to science and to technology, but not to the revelation of the gospel. And Festus represents here the secular mind. He cannot make sense of this message of the resurrection. He doesn't see the guilt. He doesn't understand why he should die. Just let him live. Who cares that he's going around saying that this guy Jesus is alive? But for the Jews, it meant everything because many Jews were converting to Christianity, and they wanted to silence this man. So, for 2,000 years, men have looked at the message of the cross, message of the resurrection, just like Festus. They look and they say the same thing. I am at a loss how to explain, how to investigate such matters. I cannot, I cannot answer the question, who is this Jesus? Why did he come? Why did he die? There's another group of men that appear in the book of Acts as well. And uh, Paul meets them in Athens. And if you look at Acts 17, just go back to chapter 17, and you read from verse 31, a group of men that meet on Mars Hill. And these were the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans believed, live for pleasure. The Stoics believed, no, you live with suffering. You live with hardship because life has pain, 
There's disease, there's death, there's poverty. Be a Stoic. So the Stoics believed in suffering, and therefore you have to um, chin up and face it. The Epicureans said, no, no, let's just enjoy life. Because we live only for a short while, and let's have fun. These philosophers met on Mars Hill, and they questioned Paul. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. Read that on your own. It's a fascinating chapter. And they questioned Paul as to what he was saying, what he was talking about. And um, Paul answers this way from verse 31, Acts 17, 31. Because he, meaning God, has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Now watch this. When he brings in this topic, okay, this is a revolutionary. No one had ever spoken about resurrection of the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to what? Scoff. And others said, we shall hear from you again concerning this. They were just being polite. They didn't want to hear Paul again. Right? They're saying, um, we'll see, type of thing. That's what they say in Naples, right? And they say, vediamo. In other words, I'm not interested. Just a polite way of brushing him off. Some were outright blunt and just began to make fun of him. Why is the resurrection of the dead so difficult to embrace? Why is this truth so difficult? Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, shows from nature how the resurrection is a reality. He just says, look at the seeds. They're planted one way and they come up another way. That's one instance where God gives an example of the resurrection. Look at night. After night, there's day. Look at the seasons. After winter, there's spring. It says everywhere around us, God gives us convincing proof that there is resurrection. So you sow man as a mortal being and he comes back as an immortal being. So the question is, why is it that you find it so difficult, so impossible? The reason why it's impossible is because unless God does a work of regeneration in the heart of man, man refuses to believe. See, it's not faith that comes first, it's regeneration that comes first. Once we are regenerated, then faith kicks in. And then we believe in the gospel. But if there's no work of regeneration, if God by spirit does not come into a man's life, into a woman's heart, and does a special work of grace, there is no belief, there is no faith. You're saved by grace, that's God's work of intervention, through faith, and that faith is not of yourselves. It doesn't come from you. Otherwise, you would have reason to boast. But it is of God, so there is no boasting. And the reason is exactly that, that God has to do the work first, otherwise we remain in darkness. Now, Agrippa is intrigued by all this, right? He's, he's listening to this whole thing from Festus. He goes, I too, verse 25, uh, 22 of verse, chapter 25, I would like to hear the man myself. I want to know about this. Why is he intrigued? Please do not confuse his interest as though He's a seeker. Now, many people speak today about being a seeker. They seek after God. They want to know God. Really, there's no such thing, all right? The true seeker is God himself. If you look in the Bible, you see it's the good shepherd that goes to seek the lost sheep. It is the woman that sweeps the ground, or the floor of her house, rather, to find the lost precious coin. God is the seeker. 
We do not seek God. Romans chapter 3 says that very clearly. No one seeks after God. No one wants God as a friend. No one. See, what would happen if Jesus would come once again in bodily form as he came the first time? Because he will come back again. But in glory, surrounded with flaming angels, as it says in 1 Thessalonians. But if he were to come again in bodily form, what would happen to Jesus? The same thing. Mankind would crucify him. The same thing. There is no difference. The heart is desperately wicked. And when we look at someone like Festus or someone like Agrippa that seems to show interest, Festus is someone that says, look, I just, I'm very pragmatic. I want everything to go well in my, my, uh, my region. Agrippa is, in, is curious. He's intrigued. I want to hear the man, but not because he's genuinely interested in Scripture or in Jesus himself, though he was well-versed in Scripture. So imagine now the next day, the hearing is held in this splendid hall called the audience in Caesarea. In come Agrippa and Bernice, the king and his sister, and they're dressed in purple robes. In comes Festus. He's dressed in scarlet. He's the governor. In come the Roman legionnaires. In come the civic officials. In come the interested onlookers, the ones who are curious, the ones who can make themselves free for this special audience. It's vast. It's impressive. It's packed. And then finally, in comes the apostle. And he's dressed in a threadbare tunic. He's got nothing. Chains are hanging from his gnarled hands. His body. Imagine just for a moment, Yoda in Star Wars. You know when he comes and he's all curled up? Well, that's probably how Apostle Paul, he was not a sight to be seen. There was nothing attractive about him. They must have looked at him and goes, boy, I sure, I'm happy I'm not him. He was insignificant. He was unattractive. And he didn't draw much attention until he lifted his head and his eyes portrayed confidence. He was not sheepish. And he spoke. And from the moment he speaks, Paul takes center stage. And everyone else in that audience is now on trial. Paul is not on trial. They are. What follows is the greatest defense of the Christian message that the New Testament presents. In fact, I would say that all the book of Acts leads to this very moment on purpose. Luke does this. He starts with Pentecost, and then he goes right to this very, he dedicates chapters to Paul's imprisonment and then final defense before King Agrippa, Bernice, and Festus, and all the other officials. And as the hearing proceeds, the amazing fact becomes apparent. Paul makes them feel guilty, very guilty. And then he shouts out these words. Why, verse 8, we read it at the outset. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? This is the question of ages. This is the question that we, the church, presents to a dying world. And we as dying men 
Not dead men. Now we've been made alive in Christ. We were once dead in our sins, but now we are alive. We as dying men speak to other dying men who are dead in their sins this very truth. The truth of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in verse 22, he speaks, he concludes his speech by saying these words. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, uh, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses, which means scripture, said was going to take place as to whether the Christ was to suffer and whether as first from the resurrection of the dead he would proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to Gentiles. He's saying, I've been faithful. I've been proclaiming this message. This is what I am guilty of. At that point, Festus has had enough. He's had him for in prison for quite a while. He's heard the Jews. He's heard the Sanhedrin. He's heard Paul speak. And now he just blows up. He just fed up and interrupts Paul and shouts, Paul, verse 24, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. Now, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because Paul had pricked their hearts with the message. The same Peter who pricked the hearts of the Jews who gathered on the day of Pentecost with the message of the gospel, now that same message was pricking their hearts and Festus wanted nothing of it. See, if he truly believed that Paul was insane, you know what he would do? He would not send him to Rome. Because sending an insane man to Rome meant suicide for him. It's a career suicide move. It would have meant the end of him as the governor. So he goes, what am I going to do? I am feeling guilty. He's making me guilty. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to interrupt him. Festus reacts like all secular men react to what Paul has been saying. Visions, revelations, the Bible, Jesus Christ, the Son of God coming down from heaven, dying on the cross, resurrecting, all of it. It's mumbo-jumbo for the secular man. Wants nothing of it. Dead men stay dead. That's what I know. That's empirical evidence. It's always been this way. There is no room for anything else. Festus, the governor, reluctantly lets Paul speak, but then adamantly stops him. Dead in his tracks, he wants none of this mumbo-jumbo. You see, had Paul said Jesus was a good teacher, he did a lot of good, he went about just teaching, and he rebuked the Romans, and he rebuked the Jews who were the leaders, and he just made sure the weak and the oppressed, because the oppressed is a big, big word now, the buzzword, and the oppressed were vindicated and protected, you know, that would have been different. And then they crucified him. That would have been a message everybody would have understood. That would have been something that people would have, yes, what an example this Jesus was. Beautiful man, a wonderful teacher. C.S. Lewis uh, confronts this ludicrous position that Jesus was a teacher. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. When they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a great moral teacher and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet or, and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus was not a great moral teacher. Yes, he was a teacher of teachers, but more importantly, he was a son of God. And as such, he came to die and he resurrected according to Paul's claim. Now, this is impossible to believe unless, again, there is the beautiful work of regeneration in the life of the believer. And that is why Paul says, why is it considered incredible among you? People of God raises the dead. What we believe is both true and reasonable. This thing was not done in a corner. The evidence is there for all to see. Now, there have been people in history who have taken the time to look at the evidence. And after looking at the evidence, they have concluded that indeed the evidence is convincing and it shows that Jesus truly has raised from the dead. Then the question is, what do I do with this? What do I do with this truth? No study is more important. No study is more crucial. But what about Agrippa in all this? We know how Festus is. He's a secular man. He's just a pragmatist. What is Agrippa? Well, Agrippa is just a curious man. He's intrigued, but he's not interested at all in what Paul has to say. Verse 28, Agrippa replies to Paul after hearing him speak. Festus has just called him insane. Someone who's been deranged with too much learning. Agrippa says, in a short time, you are going to persuade me to make a Christian of myself. Another version says, you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. That's not what the verse really means. Some people have believed that, and uh, there's a song, there's a song, by the way, it's called Almost Persuaded, as though Agrippa was just at the door of Christianity. <laughs> he was about to embrace it. It's not the case at all. What Agrippa's really trying to say, and it's just lost in the translation, is this. Do you think that in a short time, I could, with your speech, I could become a Christian? He's being sarcastic. That's what Agrippa is saying. It's a sarcastic remark. See, both them rejected Christianity. The Epicureans rejected the resurrection. The Stoics rejected the, re the resurrection. The world rejects the resurrection. They may be intrigued. They may be curious. But that's all there will be. And nothing more. The words of this man show what, how much the heart of man rejects the truth of God and how God is patient with the world. Both Festus and Agrippa, the Epicureans and the Stoics of Mars Hill who listened to the message of the resurrection, listened without faith. 
And that is why they judge the message as foolishness. And many today do the same. They listen to the message of foolishness. I have someone I meet regularly, and he's well-versed, an educated man, extremely educated, has one of these photographic memories. Sometimes he'll quote um, some passage um, from uh, some old book, some mythological book, and he'll just quote the story word per word. Really remarkable individual. But when we speak about the cross and the resurrection, that is where we part ways. That's where he says, I can't embrace that. I, I don't believe this. He says, I respect you for believing it. He said, that's what he says to me. But I cannot come to the terms to accept this. And I know why. And that's why I simply pray for him, that the gospel would be made clear to him by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Because if he's not regenerating, regenerated, he will never, ever believe. That's why the world rejects the gospel. And at times we want to try to convince the world. We want to befriend the world. We want to make the gospel a little more palatable, a little more attractive, a little more acceptable. But the gospel is not acceptable. Paul makes that very clear. When he says in 1 Corinthians, this is the only time I'm going to ask you to turn outside the book of Acts, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 to 25, when he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. And that means Gentiles, not just Greeks, but Gentiles in general. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, this message is a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, that's the key, who God calls will receive light and understanding. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind, and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. It will always be foolishness. We cannot change this message. We can't water it down and make it more palatable. It's got to be presented the way it has been given to us in Scripture. Paul, writing to the Galatians, says these words, if I or an angel or anyone else would come to you and preach a gospel different than the one you've received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. There's a curse that comes upon anyone who seeks to modify, water down, change, alter in any way the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is exactly this. It is that Jesus died for our sins and that he resurrected on the third day for our justification. And those who embrace this truth find freedom and find wonderful communion with God. They have tr been translated from darkness to light. Now there's a man who hated this message and who vehemently fought anyone who sought to preach it and did everything to stamp out Christianity. That man, Paul. I finish with him. Paul went to the Sanhedrin because such was his passion, or shall I say, his hatred <laughs> towards Christianity. All right? He passionately 
did everything possible to make sure that Jesus, the message, and Christians were removed. So he goes to the Sanhedrin to get authorization to go into another country called Syria. So there, anyone who would meet who was a Jew, not the, other, not the Syrians, but the, Jewish who lived, the Jews who lived in Syria, would be either arrested, their property confiscated, and they would be beaten and some even put to death if necessary. He got his authorization and he's headed to Damascus now with his entourage of soldiers. This was a unique mission. That's how determined Paul was. That's how much he hated Christ. That's how much he hated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the message of the resurrection, the Christians who were spreading this, and especially all the Jews that were spreading this. He was going to stamp it out. He didn't care if the Gentiles became Christian. He didn't care if the Gentiles embraced Jesus, but he didn't want the Jews embracing Jesus and the Jews preaching Jesus because he said, we have one God, he is our God, and not Jesus Christ. He is not the Son of God. He is not associated with God. He is a false prophet. And we all know what happened. On his way to Damascus, the Lord meets him and humbles him. These are the words of Paul, his first words. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Didn't Paul know who Jesus was? He authorized the death of Stephen. The robes of Stephen were placed at his feet. That simply meant that he assumed the responsibility for the death because you were not allowed to stone anyone. And Paul was going to answer for the death of this man. So here is Paul who hears Stephen speak and speaks about Jesus. Had he not heard? Was he not present? Of course he was. He heard everything Stephen said. Who are you, Lord? Who is he? I am Jesus Christ. I am Jesus Christ. Christ, Christos. I am the Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting for, Paul, and that you hate, and that you seek to put to death my followers. You are persecuting me. Imagine that moment in Paul's mind when he understands that by persecuting and arresting and, and confiscating the property of fellow Jews who had believed in Christ, He was actually persecuting his Lord. He was actually going against Jesus, the Son of God. Imagine that moment. It says for three days he was blind in Damascus. And there he was thinking about these things. The man who hated the gospel. That's what he tells as a story every time he shares his testimony. He always tells them, I hated Christ, I hated the gospel, I hated the story of the death and resurrection, I hated the Jews who had embraced Jesus. I did everything to stamp it out, but here I am willing to die for this message. Willing to die for this truth. Are we willing to live for this truth? Do we embrace it? Are we willing to go out and tell others about the death and the resurrection of Christ? Because if we keep it only to ourselves, we're doing a great disservice to our generation. You say, they don't believe in it. doesn't matter. They don't, they'll make fun of us. It doesn't matter. They'll, uh, they'll ostracize me. It doesn't matter. All of it doesn't matter. 
What matters is that we are the fragrance of life to those who believe and the fragrance of death to those who don't. That we continue to bring forth the message of the gospel. That's what matters. Nothing else. And that we tell others about the wonderful truth that has pierced our hearts. We've embraced it by faith. It has become ours. We are now children of God. We mustn't keep it to ourselves. May God give us grace to preach this wonderful message to many others who are still in darkness. But that's the reason God is leaving us here in a very unusual time when the message of the gospel is ridiculed even more than ever before, when it is cast as cast in, in, in ridicule and it's, and it's made to appear that it's outdated and now wrong or relevant, we're the ones who are called to preach this message. May we do so as Paul did. Maybe we'll never stand before an audience of, of kings and governors and maybe we'll never stand before an audience, a great audience of people to give a testimony such as Paul. But whoever God brings in our way, may we present the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may the Lord use us for his glory to be the fragrance of life for those who believe, the fragrance of death for those who do not. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we read the story of Paul and his conversion, how he came to be a, a vehement opponent and a blasphemer and a hatred and a hater of Christians and Christ and changed and translated to an individual who is willing to suffer and pay the greatest price possible for the gospel and for the, the spreading of this amazing message. We cannot but see the power of grace and the power of your amazing work of regeneration in the life of those you have called. And there may be someone here who is still in darkness, someone here who has not been regenerated, someone who is still looking at all this and maybe feels like Festus or maybe he's curious like Agrippa or maybe he scoffs like the Epicureans and the Stoics. Lord, I just pray that you would draw him to yourself. You know how to draw the most wicked, the most hardened sinner, the, the, the most uh, disbelieving individual to yourself. You know how to break down walls. You know how to pierce hearts. You know how to enlighten minds because we've done, you've done it with so many of us. You've taken us out of darkness and into your light. You have called us, you've made us yours, and you did it with this amazing, uh, with your amazing grace. And we pray for grace in the life of those who still don't know you. We've met family today, some of us, and some of us will be going to join family after the gathering. And I pray that you would use us, that you would, you would make us a blessing, Lord, so that the work of the gospel and that the message of the death and resurrection of Christ would continue and spread. For we require your help to do this, Lord. We don't have the strength. We don't have the ability. We don't have the know-how. We have no skills. We don't have the words to string them together and convince people. We are mere mortals, dying men, speaking to other dying men who are in need of truth. I pray that you would use us, that you would empower us, and that we would not be silent until our final breath. I pray this, O oh Lord, for everyone here. In the precious name of our Lord, I ask. Amen.